if you knew that less than a week from now, at the end of this week, let's just call it Saturday night, August 14th, at 11.53 p.m., if you knew that's when Jesus was coming back, and after that, the world as we know it was going to end, how would you spend this week? What would you keep doing that you're doing now? What would you immediately start doing that you're not doing? And what are you doing now that you would immediately stop doing? Now, you probably just spent about four seconds thinking about not real answers to those questions. And then the rest of the time, thinking, looking at me and thinking, uh, when is he going to start talking again? And that's because you probably thought, well, those are some interesting hypothetical questions. I'll think about them some other time. This is not hypothetical. It's real. It's hypothetical in the sense that no one except God knows when Jesus is coming back. It's almost for sure not next Saturday night at 11.53 p.m. But the point is we don't know. It could be after we die. It could be next year. It could be next week. It could be three seconds from now. Okay, it didn't happen. But the point is we don't know. Okay? And it could happen at any time. The point of our text today, which is the last several sentences of Second Peter, is that we don't know and therefore we should be ready. In fact, that's the point of the New Testament. It is the point of really the entire Bible. The entire Bible points to the fact that God has done amazing things to create the universe, that God has done amazing things to redeem the universe through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that God will do amazing things at the end of history as we know it. The end will come at any moment. And that's why we need to be ready and stop doing some stuff and keep doing other stuff and start doing some other stuff. Right now. That's why the question the Bible asks us today and is going to answer for us today is, what sort of people should we what sort of people should we be? The quick answer, if you follow on your outline, is that we should be the sort of people who are anticipating the coming day of the Lord. Two, in, who are engaging in holy conduct and godliness. Three, who are evangelizing and thus hastening the day of the Lord. Four, who are diligently being in peace, spotless and blameless. Five, who are regarding the patience of God as salvation. Six, who are understanding true doctrine and not distorting scripture. Seven, who are being on our guard against false teaching. Eight, who are growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus. And nine, who are praising God now and eternally. Okay. Now, those are all the things that the text tells us today. And if that's a little bit too much, then your takeaways, the things that I would like you to take away from this sermon, and in fact, this whole sermon series, are four things. Number one, Jesus is coming back. 
There's a lot of details around that, but the basic idea is that Jesus is coming back. Number two, God is gracious and patient. But the end is coming. Number three, therefore we should be holy and be ready. And number four, we should tell others the good news of Jesus Christ as well. We have a lot of ground to cover, so let's jump right in. What sort of people should we be? First, we should be the sort of people who are anticipating the coming day of the Lord. I'm going to read a little bit of verse 7 and then start with verse 10. Okay, Verse 7 says, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the first phrase we should talk about is like a thief. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus used this phrase. Now Peter uh, excludes the phrase uh, in the night because Jesus a number of times said, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Okay? Paul used this very phrase. The point is that the day of the Lord will come suddenly and unexpectedly. We don't know when that will be. That's why we need to be ready. Okay? Next, the heavens will pass away. There's intense heat. It will be burned up. The elements will melt. What does all this mean? Well, first of all, it will pass away with a roar. The Greek word for roar here is an onomatopoeia, which is a word that sounds like what it is, right? Crash, bam, just like that. Roar is that same kind of thing, okay? And destruction by heat. Now, we could explore all the meanings of these words one by one, but basically what it says is that God is going to destroy and transform everything by burning it up, okay? Now, recall in Genesis, and this was in last week's sermon, that after the flood, God had promised that he would never again destroy the earth with water. Okay, that's Genesis 9-11. That's why God made rainbows as a sign of his promise that he would never do that again. So God won't destroy by water, but he will destroy with heat. And the elements, the elements that he's talking about is what the ancient world considered to be the basic elements of matter. Okay, earth, air, water, fire. Now, it's tempting as modern people to read elements and think, oh, the periodic table of the elements, hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, potassium, that sort of thing, and then think to ourselves, ah, God's going to break apart actual atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons. That sounds like nuclear explosion. Now, that's not quite a proper reading of scripture for the obvious reason that Peter lived 2,000 years ago and didn't know that matter was made up of atoms and molecules. I'm not saying that's not how God will actually do the destroying and the burning and the transforming of the heavens and the earth, but that's not what Peter means. He can't mean that because that's not what he meant. 
Scripture can never mean what it never meant. So we can't read our modern understanding in, back into a 2,000-year-old text. He just means that everything will be destroyed down to a very fundamental level. And then next, we want to talk about the new heavens and the new earth. So we have the present heavens, okay, the sky and space, and the present earth. Obviously, we know what that is. We're standing on it. Okay? That's where we now live which according to verse 7 is being reserved for fire. Okay? And it will be replaced by a new heavens and a new earth. Okay, so this is all very apocalyptic. And at this point, I want to pause in our, uh, in, at an early stage in the exposition of the text and give a brief but somewhat detailed overview of the end times. Now, Peter does not give any uh, details about this except for the fire and destruction. And his point is not to explain how the end times will happen. But for us, I think it would be helpful to go over it because we don't talk about the end times all that often from the pulpit. We do study these things in depth in private Bible study and in private discipleship and in our uh, Delray Bible Institute. Uh, I mentioned last week that our welcome home class just happened to be on the week where we lectured and read about the end times. And again, I will make you the offer. If you want to learn more about this in depth, email me and I will send you uh, class materials and we can talk and I'll answer uh, any questions you might have to the best of my ability. We spoke a bit about this last Sunday, but again, let's look a little bit more at detail at what the Bible texts tell us about these things. Uh, I've written them down for you on your outline uh, so that if you are the note-taking type, which I think that for our own growth and knowledge we should be, uh, then you don't have to scribble furiously as I talk. Okay, the big picture is that God is carrying out a massive plan for all of history. Okay, so we have this slide from last week, and God has a plan that he is working out in human history through Israel in the past, the church in the present, and restored Israel in the future to establish his kingdom on earth and bless all the peoples of the world through faith, which maximally glorifies God. That is a Christian view of history from the beginning all the way to the end. Okay? So what we have here is this middle bubble, which is the church age. Okay? The church age started when Jesus came the first time. That is what we celebrate at Christmas and at Easter, right? The, the birth of Jesus, his physical life, and then his death, burial, and resurrection. That started the church age of which we are in now. When he comes back, he is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He's going to come back and reign. So he is the king at the right hand of his, the throne of his Father in heaven right now, but he is coming in power and glory to reign here on earth, which is what he promised the Israelites in the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay, so there was Israel in the past, right up until the time when the Messiah came, and then during this intervening period, this parenthetical period called the church, which is 2,000 years so far, we are currently in it, and then at some point uh, he will come back, and we don't know when that's going to be. Now, redemptive history is God's program for all of creation. A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon to you called 
lessons from redemptive history. It was about the first half of chapter 2. Now, redemptive history is the history of a creation that God created completely perfectly that fell because of man's sin and then will eventually be restored and renewed to perfection. Okay? So if we think about the Bible and how it outlines redemptive history for us, the first two chapters, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, are the creation of the world that is perfect and faultless and sinless. There's nothing wrong with it. Then Genesis chapter 3 happens, and what happens? The fall of human beings into sin in the Garden of Eden, and they are cast out of the garden. Okay? Everything from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures, all the way through the New Testament until Revelation chapter 20 is the history of fallen humankind. And the pinnacle of that history is the cross. It's when God the Father, by the power of God the Holy Spirit, sent God the Son to become a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, a historical man, Jesus of Nazareth. He took on a human nature in, a, in addition to his God nature. Why? Because man cannot save himself. Man cannot, by doing anything good, overcome any of the sin and his own sinful nature that we have from our first father, Adam. Because that is how genetics and inheritance work. We are all inherently sinful because we have inherited a fallen human nature. Jesus is perfectly God and he's perfectly man. He was born of a virgin. He did not have that sinful nature. Therefore, when he lived a life of righteousness and died on the cross, he did two things. Number one, he took on our sin on him. Okay, so all of the sin that we commit, past, present, and future, our very sinful nature, God looks at that and says, I'm going to punish that on Jesus. So he took our, our, our crimes, our sin, on the cross for us. Then, through his righteous life, God imputes Jesus' righteousness on us. So even though I am not myself righteous, God looks at Jesus' work and says, Tony Shen is then therefore righteous. Not because of what Tony Shen has done, because Tony Shen has done all sorts of evil things and not nearly enough good things because you don't get any credit for obeying the law. You only get punished for breaking the law. And God in his grace and his mercy, not because of anything that we have done in righteousness, saves us. And all you have to do, and in fact, all you can do in order to accept this free gift of salvation and reconciliation with God is to accept in, in faith the belief that Jesus died for your sins. So the church age starts with the first coming of Christ. The church age ends with the second coming of Christ to establish the kingdom, which on this graph is, called, a graph is called Restored Israel. But Jesus will come back to establish his kingdom on earth. And here is another diagram, this one showing the detail of Jesus' second coming. So the, the middle bubble that we had before is this, uh, this block right here, the church age. Okay? Then, what is going to happen in all of these things? All right. Now, this is where the rest of the Bible, and I don't have 
the time to unpack all of these things and, and go sort of, uh, you know, Bible verse by Bible verse. But the first thing that happens is that the righteous dead are raised. Okay? And we have the rapture that happens before the tribulation. Okay? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 talks about the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 57 talks about the rapture. Then how do we know that it's before the tribulation? Because texts like Revelation 3.10, I will save you from the time of testing, okay? says that we're, the church is not going to have to go through that. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, part of which we read, is that we are going to be, uh, we are not destined for wrath. Okay? So the church is not destined for wrath. So uh, the, the righteous dead are raised and the rapture happens and we will be caught up in the air with Jesus. Then a period after that is, comes the tribulation. Okay? The tribulation is talked about extensively by Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25, and also uh, revealed to us in the revelation given to the Apostle John in Revelations 6 through 19, but specifically 6, uh, 8 through 9, and 16. There's, there's a lot of detail around that. During this time will also be the reign of the Antichrist. A, a name you probably have heard before. The Antichrist is mentioned in the Hebrew Scriptures in Daniel chapter 9, and then in the New Testament in 2 Thessalonians 2, the first half of the chapter, and also in uh, Revelation uh, chapter 13. Then what happens, okay, so we have the tribulation, we have the reign of Christ, so when Christ comes down, we are met up with him in the clouds, and then after the tribulation, Christ descends uh, with the armies of heaven, okay, with the saints and with the angels, on a white horse, bearing a sword, okay, and this is uh, the revelation of Jesus uh, to the earth, at which point um, tribulation saints and Old Testament believers will be, uh, will be raised. Okay? So the premillennial return of Christ, that is to say before the millennium, before the thousand years, uh, is described in Revelation toward the end, uh, 19 verses 11 through 16. And then Armageddon, another, uh, another uh, term that you've probably heard, like there's movies called Armageddon, that sort of thing, right? And the destruction of the Antichrist. That happens when Jesus comes back. There's a giant battle, which is uh, right outside of, uh, right outside of uh, Megiddo, an actual place in Israel, uh, Pastor Matt and I and a bunch of others like Quran have actually visited this place. Okay, it's a big battle plain. So Armageddon happens at that place. The destruction of the Antichrist happens at that time. It's described in Revelation 9, just in five verses, 17 through 21. Then the saints are raised. Everyone who wasn't raptured up as part of the church, but who came to faith during the tribulation and was killed, was martyred, uh, died in, you know, in, in the big cataclysm, they're going to be raised, as long as they're in faith, uh, at that time. Revelation 20, verse 4, talks about that. And then there is actually a millennium. There are different viewpoints that say that the millennium is spiritual or that there's not going to be a, a millennium at all. The Bible clearly says that there's going to be, be a millennium. It's a thousand-year period okay, where Satan is bound. And that is described... Uh, in Isaiah 65, 19 through 23, there's a little bit of destruction about what life will be like during that time. And in Revelation, uh, going back to Revelation 20, 
verses 1 through 6. Like, we're not skipping any verses in Revelation here. We're just going, you know, chunk by chunk, and this is how John saw it, and this is how John uh, revealed it to us. So there's a millennium. It's a thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, establishing the kingdom uh, of Israel once again. At the end of this time, Satan, who had been bound, okay, and the way this works is that uh, an abyss was opened up, and a very strong angel took Satan, who's also an angel, just a fallen angel, bound him in chains of some sort, and cast him into the abyss, sealed it up, and he was bound there for a thousand years. Can't do any mischief during that time. So the millennial kingdom will be a period of you know, unprecedented sort of like wealth and prosperity and, and health and, and all these good things. But when he comes out, he will deceive the nations once again. And there will be another battle, another Armageddon-like battle. And the Bible doesn't talk a lot about the details of it. They're not making a movie about it. They're just, it just says it's over, right? Because Christ wins. And that's really the bottom line of all of this, is that Jesus wins in all of this. So Satan is loosed, the battle is joined, uh, and Jesus wins. Then there is a judgment of the wicked, right? So the judgment of the wicked is right in here as well. And that is the next few verses of Revelation 20 in verses 11 through 15. Okay, so the judgment of the wicked. I shared with you just a few minutes ago the good news. The good news is that we are saved by Jesus through faith because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, which is to die for us. And he was raised on the third day as a promise of our own future resurrection and everlasting life. The bad news is, of course, that we are all wicked. So we can't just look at that and say, the judgment of the wicked, oh, yeah, that's all the bad people. The problem is that we are all bad people. We are all wicked. A common misunderstanding is that there are good people and bad people, and good people go to heaven, and bad people go to hell. That's not the case. What's true is that there, we are all bad people. And bad people who are forgiven go to heaven. And bad people who are not forgiven go to hell. So the, the judgment seat of Christ here is that bad people who are not forgiven are judged. There are books of deeds because God sees everything and knows everything. So there are books of deeds. And everyone's deeds will be read uh, out loud, and that's like a big trial, and then, and then the sentencing comes, okay? So, as our first father, Adam, sinned in the Garden of Eden, and every human since has inherited his sinful, non, uh, fallen nature, therefore, we are completely depraved and sinful in every area of our being, and therefore, we do not have any self-righteousness when it comes to judgment. The only thing that we can do is throw ourselves at the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And that is the good news. The good news is we can be forgiven, and the good news is we don't have to work for it. Jesus has done all the work for us. Jesus has paid the entire debt. All we have to do is come to him. The next thing that happens is that the old heavens and the old earth pass away. So I've inserted this right here. The first heaven and the first earth pass away, and then the, there's the new heavens and the new earth. That's spoken about in the very first verse, only one verse of Revelation 21, 
And it is also our text, part of our text for today, 2 Peter 3, 7, and 10 through 13. Okay? And then there becomes the eternal state. The eternal state is the rest of eternity. Okay? The new heavens, the new earth. Uh, there is also a holy city, the new Jerusalem, that comes, comes down. This is described again in Isaiah 65, and then also in, a little bit in Isaiah 66, and also in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. Okay? So, given that all of these things are going to happen, what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to look for this. We, are, we should be the sort of people who are anticipating the coming day of the Lord. Looking for here is firm expectation. It is anticipation that this is going to happen. And that is why we need to be ready. According to his promise. This is a theme of 2 Peter. He talks about the promises of God in chapter 1 in verse 4 and 19. He talks about the promises of God again in, uh, in chapter 3 in verse 4. He says, what are, what are the promises of God? And again in verse 9. Okay. So the promises of God are magnificent according to chapter 1. And these are the things that we have to look forward to then we want to say, in which righteousness dwells. The new heavens and the new earth are places where righteousness dwells. Okay? The eternal state has no sin. There is no sin. Okay? So sometimes we think of, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And we think about it as, yeah, I'm getting old, or, you know, my grandma died, and I hate death, and death is terrible, and wouldn't it be wonderful to live forever? And we think about it in terms of having everlasting life, and we will never grow old, and we will never get sick. But actually, I don't think that that's the greatest part of the everlasting life. The everlasting life is that our sinful nature is totally renewed and regenerated, and we will never, ever sin again and never ever be sinned against again. Isn't that good news? This is where righteousness dwells. Now, Peter's point is not to go into all this detail, but to juxtapose true believers from false teachers and to exhort godliness in light of the coming end times. I just uh, gave you all of the details so that we would be somewhat familiar with it. So, what sort of people should we be? First, the sort of people who are anticipating the coming day of the Lord. And second, the sort of people who are engaging in holy conduct and godliness. Verse 11 says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Okay, so holy conduct is external actions and behavior. And godliness is the same word that is used in uh, verse 2-9 and also in uh, verse 1, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verses 3, 6, and 7. We're talking about piety and devotion to God from an inner level. Okay? Now remember, we are not saved by being good. We are not saved by being good. Okay? This is not a fear-based call to action. We are saved by the grace of God on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. Once we are saved then, what is the basis for our obedience, for our holiness? 
Because some people think that, oh, I'm good. I believe in Jesus. I said the sinner's prayer. I have a get out of jail free card. Now I can do whatever I want. The Bible, especially in Romans chapter 6, clearly says that is not the case. So what is our motivation for holiness? Over and over again, the Bible tells us it's because the Lord is coming. That is why. The cross of Christ is for forgiveness and reconciliation. The return of Christ is to motivate holy conduct and godliness. There are at least a dozen passages from the New Testament that talks exactly about this, that makes the direct link between the end times coming, and that's why we need to be on our best behavior alert, etc. I'll just give you a few examples. Okay. Mark 13, 32 through 37. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but of that day or hour, no one knows. Right? And he goes on and says, take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey. And he leaves his house and puts his slaves in charge, assigning each one to his task, which the slaves have to obey. Right? He also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on alert. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep, or drunk, or with your pants down, or something. Right? Holiness. Be ready. Next. Another example. Romans 3, 11 through 12. Uh, Paul writes, do this, do all, actually all of these other things. Then he says, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. He lived in expectation that the coming of Christ, the second coming, would come during his lifetime. Obviously it didn't. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Last example, Colossians. Uh, actually, uh, pretty much all of chapter 3 and going into chapter 4. Cha uh, 3, 5, Colossians says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Verse 6 goes on to say, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to uh, idolatry. And then he goes on for the rest of the chapter to talk about all the other things that should be done all the way through, really the end of the letter, but like particularly through verse 4, 6. Okay? Very, very clear. Like, this is what's happening, therefore you should act this way. This is what's going to happen, therefore you should act this way. You don't know when this is going to happen, therefore this is how you should act. Okay? That is our motivation. Okay? And I've also written down for you at the bottom of the slide, uh, a number of the other examples, which you, know, you can look up yourself. Now, here's the deal. The bottom line is that what we think about the end times totally affects how we live. Right? If you have doubts about eschatology, just like the doubters in chapters 2 and the first part of chapter 3, then you will live immorally. If you have faith and assurance about your salvation and about the things to come, that will motivate you to live in a godly way. Okay? 
So what sort of people should we be? Number three, we should be the sort of people who are evangelizing and hastening the day of the Lord. In verse 12, we read, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, etc. Okay? Now, we have already discussed looking for as anticipation of the day of the Lord, but the word hastening is a little bit strange to us. Okay? Last Sunday, we spent some time talking about the sovereignty of God in bringing about his plan of redemption exactly when and how he plans to do it. Right? So in verse 9 we read, The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So how can we hasten the coming day of the Lord? What Peter appears to mean here is to, that we should tell people about Jesus. We should evangelize. We should reach out to the lost and perishing. Preach the good news. Pray for people to repent and be saved. If God is not being slow and instead is being patient and he doesn't want people to perish, but instead for them to repent and be saved, then apparently his plan is for whoever he is going to be say whoever he is going to save to be saved and then he will bring about the end. Okay? So in a sense, we hasten or bring about sooner the day of the Lord by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with people who don't believe. Or as I like to say sometimes, who don't believe yet. Okay? I don't mind sharing the gospel with people who say, no thanks, or that's nice, or even that's lame. Okay? Because God is sovereign over the calling and the choosing of everyone who comes to faith. But I like to think to myself that God may save every person that I share the gospel with. The scriptures say that there is much rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And likewise, there is much rejoicing in my heart when son, one sinner repents. So don't get discouraged about sharing the gospel. And certainly don't be ashamed of the gospel. Because as Romans 1.16 says... The gospel is the power of God for all who believe. The sooner we evangelize everyone, and everyone who is going to be saved is saved, then Jesus comes back. And that is our blessed hope. So what sort of, sort of people should we be? We should be, next, the sort of people who are diligently being in peace, spotless and blameless. Spotless and and blameless. This picks up the theme of uh, verse 3-9. Uh, sorry, this, is, uh, this says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Okay, so Peter then talks about, uh, uh, sorry, refers to his audience as beloved. This is the third time out of four that he's going to say this in the letter. He, uh, it, and it's in this chapter, he says it in verses 1, 8, 14, and 17. And the point is that he, he loves them. Okay. Now, to be diligent is to work hard. The NIV translates it as make every effort. Make every effort. Okay. This is an ongoing theme in Second Peter. In chapter 1, verses 5 and, and 10, you be diligent. You be diligent to do these things. 
in verse 15, he says, I will be diligent. And here he's saying, be diligent. Be diligent to be found in peace. In peace is reconciliation with God, resulting from Christ making reconciliation between sinners and God. So come to Christ. But it's also a peace of mind and a lack of anxiety because you know that your efforts to please God are bearing fruit. So you have a good conscience, okay, so, so to be in peace. And to be spotless or blameless, what he's talking about here is moral purity, once again. Moral purity. Okay? Now, to be spotless or blameless is a, an analogy, a metaphor, for being washed with the blood of Christ, who was the only one who was spotless or blameless. Okay? Uh, Christ is, if we go back to uh, the Passover, all the way back into the Torah, the, the Hebrew scriptures, it, the book of Exodus, the Passover lamb was supposed to be a male lamb, one year old, uh, without blemish. And Jesus is our more perfect Passover lamb. He is the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. Okay? And then there's also sacrificial lambs and offerings throughout the Torah in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and it also speaks about that in the prophets in Malachi. Okay? Now, spotlessness and blamelessness. Now, contrast that <clears throat> with the false teachers. The false teachers are described as stains and blemishes in 2.13. So let's again, once again, as a reminder, let's get it straight. Salvation is by grace. There is nothing that we can do to earn it. But hard work is not the root of salvation, but rather the fruit of salvation. It is not the cause of salvation. It is the effect of of salvation. So given that we are saved by the grace of God, then we ought to be diligent and make every effort. All right, the fifth way of what sort of people should we be is the sort of people who are regarding the patience of God as salvation, which is exactly what verse 15 says. All right, in verse 9, we read that uh, the Lord is not slow about his promise but is patient with you, not wishing for any to repent, but for all to come to repentance. Each of us can remember a time when we weren't saved. Then there came a time when we were saved. For some of us, that's a distinct memory, okay, on a particular date. And then for other people like me, we're not exactly sure when we were saved. But we're sure now that we are saved because we are steadfast and standing firm in our belief in Christ. The point is, at one point we weren't saved, and now we are. Okay? Why? Because, uh, sorry, uh, we weren't. And similarly, there are people who aren't saved right now, but they will be saved. And how does that happen? Because God has always known whom he would choose to have mercy on. He chose us before he even created the physical universe, says Ephesians. There are names written in the book of life that Revelation and other places in the Bible mention, who haven't come to faith yet. So the patience of God is, at the exact right moment that he has ordained beforehand, he will save each person. The Holy Spirit will regenerate a dead spiritual heart right at that moment. And in his grace, he has given us, who have already believed, 
a role to play in the salvation of others. Isn't that wonderful? We get to tell people about the good news, and God uses our weak and meager efforts in order to bring about salvation of others. Okay? Now, he didn't have to do this. This is a, also a grace of God. He could have chosen any number of other ways in which to save people. He could have hit people with lightning. He could send angels to touch them, and then, they, then they're saved, or whatever. Right? You can easily imagine uh, many, many different ways in which God could have made this happen. But that's not the system that God created. God created a system where we who already believe need to share the good news. And you know, however, after however many tellings, whether it's one or a thousand tellings of the gospel and the sharings of the gospel, then somebody comes to faith. As Romans 10, 13 through 15 says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear, uh, how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. We brothers and sisters, are the ones being sent. The moment we leave this place, we are being sent into the mission field out there to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to our lost and perishing family, friends, and neighbors, and co-workers. Okay? The point is that God is patiently waiting for all of his chosen ones to come to him, and then one day the Lord will come. And our role is to evangelize the lost so that all the called and chosen ones will hear his voice and come to him. Okay? On that note, come to him. If you are listening and thinking to yourself, I have sin. I need to be forgiven. I don't want to be destroyed with intense heat. I want to be with God. I want to be with Jesus. I want to be in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells and there is no sin. I'm tired of injustice. I'm tired of other people's sin. I'm tired of my own sin. You can come to him now. Come to him. Come to Jesus and be saved. What sort of people should we be? Number six, we should be the sort of people who are understanding true doctrine and not distorting scripture. Verse 15. Just as also just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which there are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter calls Paul our beloved brother and he says he wrote to you in all his letters. The Apostle Paul was the author in the New Testament of Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament were written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter and Paul knew each other personally. 
Paul, in fact, confronted Peter to his face when Peter, for a short period of time, got taken in by false teachers and got the gospel wrong, quite frankly. Okay? Paul wrote about that in the letter to the Galatians, which was maybe 15 years before 2 Peter was written. Okay? And we know from 1 Peter that Peter was writing to the same areas in uh, modern-day Turkey, what is now today Turkey, okay, that uh, Paul wrote to when he wrote Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians. Those are all in modern-day Turkey. Okay? Now, Galatians was written 15 years earlier, but Colossians and Ephesians were written uh, quite a ways, uh, quite, a, quite a bit later, probably just a few years before 2 Peter was written. Okay? So Peter already knows about Paul's letters and the authority with which Paul, as an apostle, a messenger of Christ Jesus, uh, uh, wrote these things. Okay? And uh, P Paul wrote according to the wisdom given him. This goes back to what we discussed uh, a few sermons ago about the inspiration of Scripture, that, uh, that men by themselves do not write, write the Bible. This is not a creation of man by himself, but rather that the that God, the Holy Spirit, breathes out the words of God through the pens of men who write them down. Okay? That is the, the inspiration of Scripture, that all Scripture is God-breathed. And he, uh, Paul, Peter says that Paul is speaking, of, speaking in them of these things. Okay? Uh, P Paul talks a lot about the end times. On your outline, there's a number of references, and a, a bunch of them are from the letters of Paul, okay? in which some things are hard to understand. They're hard to understand. You've got to study. It doesn't mean that they can't be understood, just that we need to study hard and do an intellectually honest job of trying to understand. Okay? Which the untaught and the unstable distort. All right, Peter, once again, is referring to false teachers, which is a major theme of this letter, especially chapter 2. Uh, and he's he possibly is referring to their followers as well. Untaught literally means they haven't been taught, so they, they don't know. But the way Peter is using it here, it could also mean that they, are, uh, that they have been taught the truth, that they have been taught correct doctrine, but... They are willfully ignorant, okay? maybe because that, uh, probably because they are motivated to, by their own lusts, right? following after their own lusts, as it says earlier in chapter 3, following after their own lusts, they willfully distort the scriptures and spread false teaching. Okay? Unstable means either wavering on true doctrine, maybe because they are new believers and don't know very much, or they're wavering on their morality. Okay? In 2.14, the unstable souls were the ones that were being enticed by false teachers. Here it seems clear that Peter means the false teachers themselves uh, and maybe the ones that they've bamboozled. Okay? And then to distort is literally to twist. And figuratively, it means to uh, describe torture. Okay? So false teachers twist, distort, torture the word of God to make it say things that it doesn't mean. This happens so often in churches and so-called churches and false religions that many, many people are being misled in our day. Okay? 
The misuse of Scripture ranges from, I guess, the sort of the relatively innocuous, the, the self-centered and, and like narcissistic. So you read yourself into the text, even though that's not what is being written. It's not being written to you. Or maybe, you know, you read your country into the text, right? Uh, and it ranges from that to the really, really bad, to the condemnable and the accursed heresies like Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Oneness Pentecostals, the Word of Faith, the Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Gospel. Now, you could preach a whole sermon series on all of this false teaching. And in fact, we have. Pastor Matt preached a sermon series called SOS, Sermons on Sermons, back in 2012. You can still watch the whole series on Vimeo, and I suggest that you do, uh, our Vimeo page, and also you could listen to the series on our, on our mobile app. Now, if Delray Church has any particular strength, it is in teaching. Right? It is our firm conviction that we live in an anti-intellectual age where people aren't putting forth nearly enough effort to study, to teach, to learn, to read, and to understand. And that there are entirely too many distractions like leisure, travel, uh, consumer goods, sports, entertainment, some parts of the internet, right? Some parts of the internet are quite helpful. We are, as Neil Postman writes, amusing ourselves to death. So don't be untaught. You make yourself very vulnerable and unstable if you are untaught. There is no excuse to be a member of this church and not be well taught. So avail yourself of the teaching that is available to you. We love only one thing more than discipling you, and that is leading people to Christ. Preach Christ and make disciples who in turn preach Christ and make disciples. That is the great commission that Jesus our Lord has given us, and we should obey it. To their own destruction, quite simply, false teachers are condemned, and they will be punished and destroyed by God. Okay? Peter repeats the point that he made in the first half of chapter 2, uh, which, again, we covered in a previous sermon. As they do the rest of the scriptures. Now, this is a very small but very cool little phrase that, uh, because Peter is calling Paul's letters scripture. Right? Just imagine, you're a Jew in the first century. You've got the Torah from 1,500 years ago. Right? And, then, uh, and then you've got the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh written over a period of about a thousand years after the Torah. But the last time that God, through one of his prophets, added to the scriptures was over 400 years ago. Now the Messiah has come, and all of a sudden there's new scripture being written by people you know to you. That's pretty cool. And there's a similar phrase written by Paul in 1 Timothy 5.18 where he quotes the Gospel of Luke and calls that scripture. So these men, these apostles, are recognizing scripture as being written by one another. What sort of people should we be? Seventh, we should be the sort of people who are being on our guard against false teaching. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own 
steadfastness. Okay? He uses the word beloved once again. This is the fourth time in this chapter he has called them beloved. He loves them. He wants what's best for them. So he says, be on your guard. Now, this is, very typical. this is a very typical warning and command. Most of the books of the New Testament have at least one warning against false teachers, and many of them, guarding against false teaching, is a major theme. So we, too, must be on our guard. We must not be carried away by the error of unprincipled men. This is the same error as the false teachers in 2.18. And unprincipled is the same description of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, which he refers to in 2.7. It means unrestrained, without lawful standards. Okay? The people who want to lead us astray are in many cases hypocrites and wolves in sheep's clothing. They preach one thing while in their private lives they are crazy sinful. So that you do not fall from your own steadfastness. Okay? Like being on guard, uh, being steadfast is a typical exhortation in the New Testament. Stand firm in the faith. Be strong. Stand firm in the Lord. Continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. Fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. Hold fast your confession of our hope without wavering. These are all things that the New Testament tells us over and over and over again. Okay. What sort of people should we be? Number eight, we should be the sort of people who are growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus. Growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus. Okay, to grow in grace is to grow in repentance and in re receiving of God's grace. Martin Luther wrote in his 95 Theses, Thesis 1, when our Lord and Master said to repent, he meant that the entire life of a Christian should be one of repentance. Keep repenting and growing in the grace of Christ. But more than that, here's another application for us, that we ought to grow in being gracious as well, okay? Grow in forgiving others, extending forgiveness to others, just as God in Christ has forgiven you, Ephesians 4.32 says that. So we receive grace from God, and we extend grace to others. Big part of being a Christian. And then we grow in knowledge, okay? We, we taught about being um, not unstable and not untaught, We've learned in previous sermons about how to uh, master what is true in order to discern what is false. True knowledge is not mere intellectual knowledge of the Bible and Jesus, but really whether you know Jesus, and perhaps even more importantly, whether Jesus knows you. Because he will say to some people, I never knew you. So are you known by Jesus? But it doesn't exclude head knowledge. It doesn't include the intellect, exclude the intellect. We should be diligent to study and present ourselves approved to God as workers who are not ashamed because we accurately handle the word of truth. It says in 2 Timothy. And finally, number nine, we should be the sort of people who are praising God now and eternally to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Okay? We ought to be giving God the glory in everything we do. He created us. He sustains us. He created and sustains the entire physical universe, every little bit of it. 
He forgives us in Christ Jesus, and He empowers us through the Holy Spirit. There is no part of anything we are that we don't owe to God. There is nothing about us that God doesn't rightfully own. We belong to Him because He bought us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So we must glorify Him, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we will be glorifying God in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. We get a preview of what that will sound like in the revelation given to the Apostle John. Again, in uh, Revelation chapter 5, chapter 5 in part says, Then I looked, verse 11, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. That is our song. That is our song and, and so many other infinite songs. Who knows what will be created you know, uh, throughout eternity to give praise, worship, honor, glory to God in the, in the life to come. So we have completed studying the letter of 2 Peter. It has been a pleasure preparing and preaching them to you. To God be all glory. What have we learned? We have learned that Jesus is God, Savior, Christ, and Lord. Therefore, he is worthy to be believed in for the forgiveness of our sins and worthy to be worshipped. We have learned that God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have learned that God, by his own glory and excellence, has called and chosen us. We have learned that God has granted to us precious and magnificent promises. We have learned that given these things, we should be diligent and make every effort to be holy, to increase in knowledge, to have self-control, to persevere, to be godly, to have brotherly love for one another, to love one another. And we have learned that false prophets concoct cleverly devised tales and that many people are uh, deceived by them. We have learned that the apostles uh, were eyewitnesses of Christ and therefore the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are true. We have learned that, the, that true prophecy does not come from man alone, but men empowered and carried along by God wrote down the god breathe words, which we now have collected as the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, and the New Testament. We have learned that false teachers arose just after Christ and are still arising even to this day. We have learned that God in his sovereignty will punish them, just as he has punished Satan and his fallen angels, uh, the evil people who didn't believe Noah, the sinful people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Balaam, the false prophet who sold out for money instead of listening to God and seduced the Israelites, the people of God. We have learned that we can tell false teachers not just by whether the teachings accurately 
represent biblical doctrine, but also because their very lives and lifestyles reveal on the outside the reality of their inward spirituality. We have learned that God is sovereign over all things, including time, and that he will carry out his plans exactly when and how he wants to. We have learned that the day of the Lord, that is to say the end times, will begin when we do not expect, so we should be ready. We have learned a little bit about the order of the end times because the Bible tells us these things, and God means for us to understand them even though they are hard to understand. We have learned that because the day of the Lord is coming without warning, we ought to be the sort of people who anticipate the coming day of the, of the Lord, who engage in holy conduct and godliness, who evangelize and thus hasten the day of the Lord, who diligently are in peace, spotless and blameless, who regard the patience of God as salvation, who understand true doctrine and do not distort scripture, who are on our guard against false teaching, who grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus, and who praise God now and eternally. And finally, we have learned these last four basic things, which are our takeaways, not just for this sermon, and not just for the whole sermon series, but really for all of Scripture, which is Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. I've preached the gospel to you. Let's declare the gospel together by taking the communion package in front of you. Jesus said that when we eat of the bread and take of the cup, we declare his death until he comes. So the first thing that we do is we take the wafer. Jesus said, this is his body given for us. And he said, eat this in remembrance of me. So let us eat the little wafer. And then Jesus said that the cup is the new covenant in his blood. Wine represents his blood that was spilled for us. Do this in remembrance of him. Let's drink together. Because when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we declare his, his death until he comes. That is the gospel. That is one way to say the gospel. Second, our second takeaway is that God is gracious and patient, but the end is coming. So, therefore... We must be holy, and we must be ready, because he's coming. And because he's coming, and death and destruction wait for those who are not forgiven, we should tell everyone the good news, so that they may also come to faith. Okay? Remember, the end is coming. What are the things that you should start doing? What are the things that you should stop doing? What are the things that you should keep doing? These are serious questions for serious times. Think about them this week and change your life accordingly. It's never too late until the end comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we lift up this worship service to you and we thank you, dear God, for your word. Your word who, which tells us the truth and your word which warns us and promises us things to come. We give you 
our, our time and our song and our worship, our mind, our intellect, our heart, our money, all things, because all things belong to you. You have given us the stewardship of these things. May we steward the time because the days are growing short. In the name of Jesus, we pray.